Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, October 30th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. Think fast. What's the most interesting mammal you can think of? Is it the enormous blue whale weighing in at over 150 tons? Or is it the duck-billed platypus who lays eggs, lives on land and water, and uses its beak to sense electric currents? This week, I met up with John Flynn, the curator of the American Museum of Natural History's Extreme Mammals exhibit. He toured me around and gave me the inside scoop, plus taught me about all sorts of mammals I never knew existed. And I'll bet you didn't either. We're standing right in front of Endricotherium, which is about 16, 17 feet tall at the shoulder. It's a rhinoceros relative that lived in Central Asia about 20 million years ago, and it weighed as much as uh, four to five living modern elephants. And it's just an incredible creature. You just stand here and and realize the immensity of of what mammals were. I'm John Flynn. I'm the dean of the Richard Gilder Graduate School and uh, frick curator of fossil mammals at the American Museum of Natural History. When I first arrived here about five years ago, because I'd done a lot of exhibition work before, they asked if I would like to do an exhibit, and I thought that would be interesting, give me a year or so and get my feet on the ground, which once I did, uh, came up with this notion of trying to do something that was a a little different than most kinds of exhibits in that it uh, integrated uh, living and fossil mammals. A lot of times you see halls that have one or the other. You'll have modern dioramas or you'll see the parade of of, uh, past life and this is a chance to to show the connections between our modern world and the ancient past and also uh, to look at it from what I call a body plan orientation that we kind of walk you through from the head to the tail of a mammal and instead of looking at what the the time history has been for a group or what the contemporary environments are that they live in, uh, what the relationships might be. We wanted to have elements of all of that, but really to talk about how have mammals transformed over evolutionary time uh, in response to a variety of different kinds of environmental conditions through time and based on what their ancestry is. Where do they come from and how do they get to be what they look like? Today, John's met me in the American Museum of Natural History's Extreme Mammals exhibit. We've just walked under the enormous elephant-like belly of Endricotherium, which looks pretty much like a rhinoceros, but about 20 times the size. We find ourselves standing in front of a tiny display case with a miniature model inside, except, as I find out, its actual size. Yeah, this is Phatidinoides, 50 million year old uh, relative of shrews and moles. And Phatidinoides um, is so tiny that it weighed probably less than a dollar bill. Oh my gosh. And uh, would fit on the tip of a pencil eraser if they had pencil erasers 50 million years ago. And it kind of, yeah, it looks like a little tiny mouse like gripping the end of this tiny stick. It's about the size of your like tip of your baby finger maybe. There are uh, living mammals that come close to being that small. There's a bumblebee bat that weighs a little bit more than that and uh, so there are living forms that that are, are this tiny as well. This striking diversity is one of the reasons I wanted to check out this extreme mammals exhibit and one of the reasons the museum put it on in the first place. There are at least 5,400 known living species of mammals on the planet today. 
Scientists suspect there are some we haven't discovered yet, and at the same time, there are species that are on the brink of extinction. Now, when I met John this afternoon, I was pretty certain I knew exactly what a mammal was. Turns out, I didn't. Well, not exactly, anyway. We are mammals, so we think we kind of know what a mammal is, but a lot of it's very general and, and intuitive. We think about mammals having hair, mammals producing milk, having live birth. Those are all characteristics that might be found in mammals, but they aren't what makes a mammal. So we have a whole section of the exhibit that talks about the evolutionary history of mammals and how we came to be. And mammals are defined by ancestry, and that relates to the three living kinds of mammals, which are marsupials, placentals, and the egg-laying monotremes, the duck-billed platypus and the echidnas. And so that tells you right away that, that one of those characteristics that we always thought of as mammal, as having live birth, is not characteristic of all mammals. So you can't tell them by the traits. They help recognize a mammal that uh, is defined on the basis of ancestry. So then we move into this notion of extreme. It's a fun <laughs> word, but um, who's more extreme, we ask. And so we have a, an opossum, we have a human, and we have a skeleton of a 50-million-year-old uh, mammal called Uintotherium. Uintotherium has six horns, giant saber tusks, uh, but tiny little uh, teeth adapted for eating plants. <laughs> so it looks like it might have been a ferocious predator, but in fact we can tell from its body and its teeth that it was a plant eater. <laughs> and it's by any stretch of the imagination a relatively extreme mammal. But it has many features that are typical of mammals. It has four legs, it has five fingers, it has uh, differentiated teeth. These are all typical mammal characteristics. And then we look at a marsupial, which generally is very generalized and typical of mammals. It's relatively small-bodied, has four limbs, has a moderately small brain, uh, but it has some specializations of its own. Every species that's unique has its own distinctive features, and one of them in the possum is that it has a prehensile tail that it can grab on or grasp onto branches, so that's a specialization there. And then we confront our own mammalness and say, you know, <laughs> what about humans? Are we extreme or are we are we normal? And the, f the fact is, is that we're both. Huh. That we have characteristics that are extreme, like our incredibly large brain, right. our unusual style of upright locomotion. Uh, but just like other mammals, we also have four limbs and five fingers that we've inherited a body plan from our ancestry that continues through to today. And so we're this mix or blend of, of extreme and typical <laughs> features. As John said earlier, this exhibit is organized a little differently than most. Instead of taking us on a timeline through the history of mammals, the exhibit looks at extreme characteristics and species from head to tail. And we're starting at the head. So you first encounter this wall of skulls, and uh, we call it by the very scientific term headgear, and this sort of shows the elaborations that you see in skull, skulls and mammalian evolution that are things like horns and antlers and so on, and, and those tend to occur in species that are, are very social. So this seems really? to be a, a, a feature that's associated with recognizing other members of your species, huh. to have um, a sexual display so that you can show the vigor of the male so that they can avoid, in fact, conflict by just seeing how robust the males might be. Uh, but there's also headgear of a variety of sorts, including things like uh, this warthog that has the, 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 uh, the canines grow up through the bones oh of the gosh. skull and curl. So it forms something that looks kind of like a horn, but it's actually made teeth. of teeth. And there were horned rodents. There were 
horned armadillos huh. in the fossil record, so we can contrast the variety of things that you see elaborated in the heads of modern mammals and the incredible diversity that also happened in the fossil record. Giant nose horns on these ex the brontotheres, extinct relatives of rhinos and horses. The giant living rhino with the incredible horn that's made mostly of keratin, the fingernail-like <laughs> substance that sits on a rough bump on the, the skull. So the horn is actually a, uh, on top of the, the, the skull. It's not, a, it's not directly attached that's to the bone. That's so interesting. So in this central section, we talk a lot about reproduction because of its importance in mammal history, but we have uh, one element that I really enjoy in a lot of our exhibitions is we have live animals, and what we focus on here are sugar gliders. Sugar gliders are little marsupials from Australia that are extreme in a lot of different ways, that they're specialized nocturnal, they have very, very large eyes, they have uh, membranes extending from the arms to the legs that they can spread out uh, like parachutes and they can glide from tree to tree and they are marsupials so they have the specialized marsupial mode of reproduction and they're extremely social so they live in large social groups so they illustrate a variety of the different kinds of themes that we want to talk about in terms of mammals being uh, extreme and how do we know that they're extreme. Hmm. Can we go look? Can we see them, or are they? They may be um, sleeping right now. So they oh. they go on these activity uh, cycle levels, and you can see them all together in there. Oh, uh, resting. oh, they're right there. Yeah. Wow, I was looking way too far. Oh my gosh, they're really cute. And then when they're uh, feeding, so what we've done is is change their activity cycle. So we have the lights inside the enclosure are reflecting nighttime. Right. And so we have them active when they would normally be active at night, but it's the daytime for our visitors. And then at <laughs> uh, our nighttime, the lights go on very brightly and then they go into the hollows and sleep as they would in a tree hmm. in, in Australia. Wow. Oh, they're really sweet. How many do you have in there? There are six of them. And that's important. Interestingly, they are kept, even though there uh, is some vulnerability uh, in terms of their conservation status in Australia, they are bred in captivity, and so there's a pet trade in, in them. And um, many people keep an individual because they're incredibly cute and very, very active. But they're, uh, because they're social animals, it really is better if they're uh, kept in a group hmm. because they develop these important relationships. Hmm. This podcast will return after a quick message from Science in the City. Science in the City needs your help. Yes, yours. We know you like our podcasts. You're listening right now. But did you know that you're actually a big part of these podcasts? The Science in the City program relies 100% on your financial support. You can help us by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences or donating directly to the program online at scienceandthecity.org donate. Sponsorship and underwriting opportunities are also available. We move on to check out some extreme mammal bodies, and John stops in front of a display case with three animals, a duck-billed platypus, an armadillo, and what looks to me like a giant pine cone with legs. Yeah. Uh, there's one group of uh, mammals called the pangolins or the, or the uh, scaly anteaters. Wow. These are uh, animals that live in Asia and Africa. And they're it looks covered. like a giant pine cone. It does doesn't look, it? doesn't it? It's completely covered in scales. It's almost reptilian in, in its look, in the, way, the nature of the scales. 
scales. Yeah. These are, uh, but these are independently evolved or modified features in this group that are, again, fingernail-like substances that grow out of the skin and cover the entire body for protection, both from their food, because they wow. eat ants and termites, and it protects them from that. And then you see similarly in groups like the armadillos, where they have a, a bony element that's huh. embedded in the skin, and then that's covered by a keratin-like uh, coating on top of that that forms an armor covering. So we see over and over again a variety of different kinds of modification of the of the, the skin structures in mammals. Wow, that's great. I mean, it looks like it's made of wood, doesn't it? It's so beautiful. Yeah, it has a, a luster and, and <laughs> a, a beauty. And just in this case alone, where you see a platypus, an armadillo, and a, and a, a pangolin, just seeing the, the variety of body forms and specializations in this group. Uh, the platypus is interesting not only in having this uh, duck bill, very sensitive duck bill that's huh. filled with electroreceptors because it's sensing not by sight or sound so much as by uh, s- uh, the, the chemical reception uh, and the electrical currents that are present of, that the prey is giving off in, oh, the, in the water. Insane? But they also have one, a very rare thing that in, within mammals and that is um, poison. No way. They have a gland on the males on the hind foot that is a separate little spike that evolved on the back foot. And when that, oh, yeah, that spike it. goes in um, to uh, a potential predator or something to, to fight it off, it injects a poison. And I never knew that. Though. One reason to do exhibitions as a curator is the opportunity to really delve deeply into a topic that you already know quite a lot about, but trying to get expertise in other things. And so one example, one thing that I really love, one element that I enjoyed creating was we have a diorama of the Arctic 50 million years ago. And this is an area that today has glaciers, muskox, and polar bears. It's a very cold environment, dark six months out of the year. 50 million years ago, it was a subtropical swamp. And so you're thinking about how mammals had to have adapted to those remarkable climate changes over time. And in recreating that diorama where we contrast the moment 50 million years ago in the diorama with a viewfinder view where you look into the stereoscope viewers to see what it looks like today, that uh, striking contrast is accurate down to the minute detail. So we brought in a specialist in fossil plants. So this area in the Arctic has both fossil mammals and fossil plants, and we're able to accurately reconstruct the vegetation of that ancient environment. And working together with uh, the artists who who paint the backdrop and make those plants, the exhibition team that we have, Steve Quinn, the the head diorama artist, went down to uh, the northernmost cypress swamps in Maryland and uh, spent uh, uh, several days just painting and photographing the light at different times of day so that we could recreate what the light would look like in this kind of environment, reflecting the time of day that we were recreating in the Arctic 50 million years ago. Because the light at, at the poles comes in at a very different angle uh, throughout the day when there is sunlight than you find at latitudes that we're familiar with. And so that level of, of uh, thinking and detail is, is something that I learned a lot about, how to view the world in a synthetic way. So this is the oh, diorama. Sheesh. Oh, yeah, cool. So this is Ellesmere Island 50 million years ago. You would never guess, would you, you if you guess had that to that's guess? Above the it Arctic looks circle. like you're in the middle of uh, upstate New York forest minus the 
creature in the middle. <laughs> yeah, well, sitting in the smack dab in the middle of that swamp is a thing called Corypidon, which is an extinct lineage of uh, ho- hoofed plant eaters that was found uh, very commonly in uh, throughout Europe and North America 50 million years ago. And uh, it was one of the big lumbering plant-eating beasts of the, of the forest. And then we have a little... Uh, oh, yeah. Carnivore recreated here. <laughs> My specialty is carnivores, so we had a lot of time, uh, a lot of fun recreating <laughs> that in- entire animal. And then sneaking around in the underbrush there is a, a little taper that's an a extinct fossil relative of the modern tapers that live in uh, tropical forests of uh, South America huh. and Asia. And so this environment is uh, really wonderful because it also included turtles and crocodiles, and we've got them in this scene as well. Wow. And so you know that the uh, environment was a at least a subtropical environment in which it never got below free- freezing. So you didn't get hard freezes because you don't find crocodiles right. and these soft turtles uh, in those environments. And so the world 50 million years ago across the planet was extremely different than it is today. And so mammals at a large scale, not individual species, but entire communities had to evolve in response to major wow. climate change through time. So the last two elements that we have in the exhibition are a story about isolation, that uh, one of the ways you get new species at a very small scale is uh, isolating them from their nearest relatives. You have genetic separation and distinction, you have the potential to create new species. That can happen at a variety of different scales from small proximate areas with populations to having islands that are separated from one another. So we talk about uh, small islands in the Mediterranean where you have evidence that there were dwarf creatures that were uh, giant, their relatives are giant animals like their dwarf mammoths that occur uh, on the Channel Islands off of California or in the Mediterranean. You have uh, things like the island of Madagascar that has incredible diversity of species found nowhere else on the planet because of its long history of isolation. And then uh, some less familiar things like the continent of South America. We know Australia as an unusual kind of environment with unusual creatures, uh, but South America was an island for most of the history of mammal evolution, and there were a whole array of things that evolved on South America that are completely different than those on any other part of the planet. And so we talk about how how isolation can affect uh, mammal evolution and some of the extremes that might occur uh, in in the fossil record. So here, for example, you see a skull of an animal called Neocurus, which is a giant relative of the capybaras and there are some of those in the fossil record um, relatives of Neocurus that are believed to have been the size of a rhinoceros. So you imagine a giant rat basically that's the size of a rhinoceros. New York is bad. John and I have sped through the extreme mammals exhibition and only a few parts made it into this podcast but you can check out the exhibit yourself until January 3rd 2010. Science in the City is a non-profit program at the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your help to keep bringing you this programming, including the weekly podcast, as well as our event series and our weekly newsletter. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org donate. As always, if you've got any feedback about the programs we run here at Science in the City, we'd like to hear it. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212 298 
8654. See you next week.